Well, good morning, Emmaus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, as you can see, Emmaus Kids is now dismissed to go to their classes. So parents, if you have children who are here today and, and, and you're newer with us and you don't know how all that works, you can actually exit here. You can go out into the lobby, go to your right and go upstairs and you'll be able to get your kids registered for a class where they'll hear about Jesus and they'll be discipled in the ways of the Lord. Hey, listen, uh, when you walked in this morning, you had waiting for you in your cup holder, one of these cards. These cards were being handed out today because here at Emmaus, one of the things that we're about is the Great Commission. We're about spreading the good news of Jesus and his kingdom to the ends of the earth. And that starts right here in Kansas City. It starts right here in your sphere of influence among your family and your friends and people that you know. So that card is going to kind of be a nudge for you, uh, sort of a prompt today. We're going to ask every member of Emmaus uh, to do three things. We're going to ask you to identify one lost person in your life, one person who does not know Jesus Christ, and we're going to ask you to pray for them. Pray for them by name. Ask that God would grant them faith in Jesus Christ and the repentance that leads to life. The second thing we're going to ask you to do is take a step toward that person, right? Take, a, take some tangible step toward them. Take it in some tangible way. Show them that you care for them. And then finally, what we're going to ask you to do is to share the good news of Jesus with them. Tell them about what Jesus has done. Invite them to join you here at Emmaus on a Sunday morning to hear the good news of Jesus declared and displayed among his people. So please take that with you and uh, consider how you might uh, put it in the hands of someone you know this week. All right, well, this morning we're starting up a new series on the prophecy of Habakkuk. So turn there with me. Turn to the book of Habakkuk. We'll be looking at the first handful of verses in Habakkuk chapter 1. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. So that's our passage for today. Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is a little book that is nestled in that collection of books of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. And you'll find the book of Habakkuk located between the prophecies of Nahum and Zephaniah. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 together. Here's what it says. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This is the word of the Lord. If you read and study the scriptures long enough, one thing you'll start to notice 
is that the Bible is a story. In Scripture, what you have is multiple human authors in different circumstances writing over the course of several centuries, and yet all of it, all of those authors are writing one single unified story. This is because the Bible is not just some accident of human history. It's not merely some artifact of antiquity. No, if you read it on its own terms, what you will find at the heart of the Bible is the reality of a divine author. The Bible that, or or the God that the Bible reveals is himself a storyteller. Long before the world was formed, long before you and I drew our first breath, the God of the Bible decided to tell a story, and he determined exactly what that story would be. He determined how it would unfold. This is what we're told in the prophecy of Isaiah, where the Lord says, I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What God is saying there through the prophet is that everything that happens is part of the story that he is telling. Every event that occurs, every experience that you have. Every moment of your life, all of it is subsumed in the story that God has decided to tell. So the problem that we face in the Christian life is not that we lack for a story by which to interpret our circumstances. We do not lack for a story that gives meaning to our lives. Now our problem so often is that we don't like certain parts of the story. There was a movie that came out some years back called Stranger Than Fiction, starring Will Ferrell. And the movie was about a guy named Harold Crick who woke up one day and found that his life was being narrated by somebody else. Everything he did was part of a a script that this mysterious voice was predetermining for him. And in one scene of the movie, Harold finds out that the intent of this mystery author was to have him die at the end of the story. It was a tragedy, the story. And so as you can imagine, Harold didn't care too much for that. He didn't like what the storyteller had decided. And we can't blame him for that. It can be much the same way for us, for you and for me. We don't like those parts of God's story that are difficult and confusing. We we would rather avoid those parts that are painful. And even at times, excruciate. We may not admit it out loud, but there are times when we wish that we could write the story instead of God. That way we wouldn't have to suffer. Right? We could magically fix things and make all the bad stuff go away. We could snap our fingers and and solve all the world's problems, including our own. But there's that pesky little truth that remains. No matter how much we may not like it, no matter how much we may kick and scream and wish that things were different, we have to remember, we're not the storyteller. God is 
storytelling. It's like the old hymn tells us. This is my father's world. It's like that song that, that I used to sing in Sunday school growing up. He's got the whole world in his hands. And sometimes, sometimes that's a very comforting thought. But at other times, that can be hard for us to accept. And Habakkuk found himself living through such a time. He was living in a moment where it was hard for him to accept that the story he was living in was the same story that was being told by a God who is both all-powerful and all-good. It's, like, it's that classic theological conundrum that God's people have been wrestling with for ages. It's the question of, if God is so good and so powerful, then why does the problem of evil persist in this world? Or we might ask it another way. That same question might be put this way. If God really is the master storyteller that the Bible says he is, then why does the world seem so messed up? Couldn't he come up with a better story than this? At one time or another, we've all wondered that. I mean, these questions, they touch us right where we live. So often, they strike a nerve because they're deeply, deeply personal. Right? We've, we've all experienced the brokenness of this fallen, sinful world, and it's made us want to ask, God, what are you doing? What are you doing here? If you're the storyteller, if you're as good as you say you are, if you're as powerful as you say you are, then how on earth does any of this make sense? And so I think given the fact that we wrestle with questions of those nature, of, of that nature, one of the gifts that we're given as we approach the book of Habakkuk is that Habakkuk teaches us how we can relate to God when we're having trouble squaring what we know about God with what we experience in this world. When so much about life in this world causes our hearts to recoil within us, how do we pray to the storyteller? How do we respond to him? Well, in these first few verses of Habakkuk, we're being given two ways of responding when the story doesn't seem to make sense. And as we look at these two ways of responding, here's what we're going to find. This is what we'll see. It's a big idea for today. That God invites his people to pray honest prayers that honor him. God invites his people to pray honest prayers that honor him. When we're hurting and helpless, when we feel hopeless and harrowed, the Lord our God has given us a way to bring all of those things, all of those things that exasperate us, all of those things that break our hearts to no end, we can bring all of it to him. And Habakkuk will show us the way. So let's look at these first four verses carefully so that we can see how. The first response that Habakkuk teaches us is to embrace the practice of lament. Embrace the practice of lament. This book opens with Habakkuk introducing himself and his prophecy. 
In verse 1, he gives a, a very brief introductory statement. It's, it's almost as if he is so distressed about the things that he is witnessing that he doesn't want to belabor anything. He, he doesn't want to take any time introducing himself. And this is different than most of the prophets. Most of the minor prophets will tell you something about themselves, like their family of origin. Or in the case of the prophet Amos, we know that he was a shepherd. He tells us that that was his vocation, that Amos was this sort of like blue-collar prophet. But we see something much different with Habakkuk. Habakkuk wants to get straight to business. He wants to, to go straight to addressing the problem at hand. So the truth is that given the brevity of his introduction, we don't know much about Habakkuk. We know that he's a prophet, right? He tells us that much. But other than that, we kind of have to piece together what we can to figure out who is this guy, right? Who is this guy who's writing this book? And one helpful little clue comes at the very end of the book in chapter 3, verse 19. It's the very last thing that's said in this prophecy. The book ends with what's called a postscript. The postscript says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, what this indicates is that Habakkuk's prophecy was most likely intended to be part of the liturgy in the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, Habakkuk's prophecy became part of the public worship and the public prayer of God's people. So there's a good chance, because of this, that Habakkuk was some kind of religious professional. He probably served in the temple in Jerusalem in some kind of formal capacity. Unlike Amos, who was more of a blue-collar prophet, we might think of Habakkuk as a white-collar prophet. But it's not only important for us to know who Habakkuk is, we also need to know about the time period in which he lived and ministered. This is crucial in order for us to understand the book better. By all indication, Habakkuk is writing this prophecy during the reign of King Jehoiakim. In 2 Kings chapter 23, we're told about Jehoiakim. That he was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. And this is, this is very important to know about Jehoiakim. 2 Kings tells us he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his fathers had done. Now, some of the evil things that Jehoiakim was guilty of were things like brutal and violent oppression of his people. One Bible interpreter who has done some extensive work on Habakkuk tells us that one of the things Jehoiakim did was he raised taxes in Judah to absurdly high levels so that he could fuel his own lavish lifestyle. Jehoiakim built for himself these massive, luxurious homes. And these homes were built on the backs of slaves. He used slave labor and he violently abused his own people so that the people of Judah lived in poverty even as Jehoiakim lived in complete and utter self-indulgence. And the evil of Jehoiakim culminates in the book of Jeremiah where God is using the prophet Jeremiah to, to warn this wicked king about the judgment that is to come if he doesn't change his ways. And God says to Jeremiah, write on a scroll all my judgments against the wickedness of Judah and Israel and bring it to the king 
So that's what Jeremiah does. He compiles everything in a scroll and he presents it to King Jehoiakim. But Jehoiakim, instead of listening to God's word, instead of paying heed to what the scroll was saying, instead of repenting of his sin and his wickedness, what did Jehoiakim do? He had the scroll burned. He literally incinerated the living words of God. So you can see there that this was the kind of king Jehoiakim was. And his disregard for God had apparently trickled down to the people of Judah. It was infecting the entire nation. Because wickedness and evil, injustice and idolatry were running rampant in the streets of Jerusalem. And we know this because Habakkuk gives us a front row seat to what was happening. It's like Habakkuk in these first few verses of the book, was looking at what was happening all around him, and he didn't even recognize his own people. He's like, who are you, God? Right? I, I thought we were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I thought we were the people of the covenants. And yet here you are carrying on like this. I mean, what is happening? What is going on? And to make matters worse, by the time Habakkuk is writing this prophecy, he was probably old enough to remember when things used to be much better. Right before King Jehoiakim, there was King Josiah. And if you know anything about Josiah, you know that he's remembered for being one of Judah's most righteous kings. During his reign, Josiah instituted all kinds of reforms in Judah. He recovered the book of the law. He restored the temple in Jerusalem. He destroyed the idols of the land. He called the people to flee from idolatry and return to the living God. And so for the kingdom of Judah to go from Josiah to Jehoiakim, man, that was such a tragic turn of events. And so we can see why Habakkuk is praying the way he is praying. I mean, with, with Josiah, God's people were perfectly teed up for hope, only to revert back to their wicked ways. Things were supposed to get better, but then they didn't. Instead, things got worse and worse and worse. And so Habakkuk comes to God. And he prays this prayer of lament. Now right at this point as we venture into the contents of Habakkuk's prayer. I think it's a good idea to pause here. And define what we mean when we talk about lament. If we're not clear about this. If we're not careful to define this. Things can get a little bit confusing. Because when it comes to a prayer of lament. One of the main features that we see in this kind of prayer is complaint. In lament, we voice our complaints to God. And that's going to leave some of us scratching our heads a little bit because it's like, wait, you're telling me that I'm supposed to come to God and complain? That doesn't sound right. And you know what? That kind of confusion is perfectly understandable because we all know that there is a bad kind of complaining. 
right? There's a, a kind of complaining that I, I don't tolerate at my house, right? I, I don't let my kids whine and, and gripe and grumble about things because that kind of complaining is not okay. So we need to be careful to differentiate between godly complaint and ungodly complaint. We need to know the difference between the good kind of complaining and the bad kind of complaining. So I would define lament this way. Lament is an honest prayer of complaint that is voiced for the purpose of honoring God by seeking him alone for help and deliverance. Let me just say that one more time for the note takers. Lament is an honest prayer of complaint that is voiced for the purpose of honoring God by seeking him alone for help and deliverance. When we find ourselves living in part uh, in a part of God's story that we wish was different, lament is our way of communicating honestly and openly with the divine storyteller while also not losing sight of who he is. I was reading the other day about a bishop from the 4th century church named Basil of Caesarea. And one author describes Basil as being a man of ambidextrous faith. He was a man of ambidextrous faith, meaning that he could hold in one hand an unshakable hope in God, while simultaneously holding in the other hand the reality of hardship, the hardships of life in this world. And by God's grace, Basil was able to trust that God would use both the hope and the hardship to accomplish his purpose. And lament is a way for us to do that exact same thing. It's a, it's a way that, that we can exercise an ambidextrous faith, just like Basil. One example of this kind of faith is shown to us in Psalm chapter 13, where the psalmist prays this. He He prays, he complains about the hardships he's experiencing. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So that's how the psalm begins. It begins by lamenting hardship. But listen to how it ends. The psalmist goes from hardship to hope. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the book of Habakkuk, if you look at the whole book, you read the whole thing, you see that it follows this exact same trajectory. In fact, that prayer that we just read from Psalm 13 should sound very familiar because we also see it in Habakkuk's prayer. Uh, the, the, The psalmist and Habakkuk both ask the same question. They both come to God and they ask, how long? How long must I cry for help, says Habakkuk? God, it seems like you're not listening. How long before you save us? Need I remind you over and over of the violence that is consuming your people? Are you going to do something about it or not? Habakkuk is asking this question because he's absolutely grieved. He is grieved by the duration of the injustice he is seeing. It's gone on too long. So he's agonizing. And he's wondering what else needs to happen before God intervenes in this situation and puts an end to the injustice. 
It's the kind of situation that would leave us asking, God, if you're the only one who can establish justice, and if you are who you say you are, if you really are a God of justice, then what's taking so long? Why is justice being delayed? But not only does Habakkuk ask how long, he also asks another question in verse 3. He asks, why? What could possibly be the purpose of this apparently senseless evil I'm seeing. And Habakkuk tells us what what he's referring to. He describes the evil to us. He asks in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why does God stand by idly and watch his people cause all kinds of trouble? Why is it that destruction and violence are constantly before my eyes? Why is it that strife and contention are arising continually before me? And in verse 4, Habakkuk goes on even further. He elaborates on things even more. Saying that the law of God, it was supposed to be the delight of his people. Those laws that God had given to govern the children of Abraham. Those laws that were supposed to make God's people into a just society. Those very laws were being paralyzed. They were being stifled. Why? Why is it so, God? Why why would you, who gave these laws to your people, allow them to be disregarded in this way so that justice fails to go forth? What's even worse is that not only does justice fail to go forth, it was being completely twisted and perverted. Because look at the end of verse 4. The wicked surround the righteous. You remember last week when we looked at Psalm 1, where the psalm showed us that the way of righteousness leads to prosperity, and the way of wickedness leads to destruction. Well, Habakkuk is looking at the situation that's in front of his eyes, and he's seeing the very opposite of that. Right? He's seeing the righteous languish under the oppression of the wicked. And so he asks what any one of us would ask in that same situation. He wants to know why. Why is it that his lived experience in this moment seems to contradict what he knows to be true? If the righteous prosper and the wicked perish, then why are the righteous perishing at the hands of the wicked? These are the questions that were burning. In the heart of this prophet. And I want you to understand today. That these same questions comprise the basic ingredients of a prayer of lament. When we embrace this way of praying. When we get honest with God about the hardships we face. We will find ourselves asking these same questions. How long? How long must I suffer? And why? Why is it that violence and injustice and affliction are allowed to persist all around me? And so it is that Scripture gives us language with which to voice our complaint to God when we find ourselves living through the hardest parts of His story. Friends, these questions are the language that 
God will use to carry us through. And when we bring our most honest questions to God in faith, you know what he does? He welcomes them. He welcomes our our honest questions. He welcomes us to bring our pain and our confusion. He is not put off by these things. No, despite what we're tempted to believe in our hardship, the storyteller is good and kind and completely trustworthy. And so he's not offended when we struggle with certain aspects of his story. That actually leads us to the second response that Habakkuk teaches us. Habakkuk shows us what it looks like to entrust our hearts and lives to the storyteller. The first week, we saw that he taught us to embrace the practice of lament. Now he's teaching us to entrust our hearts and lives to the storyteller. We're actually going to look at it more next week. But for now, let me just point out that starting in verse 5, God demonstrates his infinite grace. He does not respond to Habakkuk's gut-level honesty and say, Who are you to ask me that? How dare you question me? Who do you think you are? No, instead, what God does is he gives Habakkuk an immense privilege. He gives to Habakkuk the privilege of being brought in on the plans and purposes of God. To our surprise, Habakkuk gets a, a peek behind the curtain to see how it is that the story will unfold. He gets to see where the story is headed. In other words, the storyteller brings Habakkuk into his confidence. He treats Habakkuk as a friend. It's a gesture of unthinkable loving kindness that a finite creature would become privy to plans concocted by infinite wisdom. And yet that's exactly what God does. He speaks to this broken prophet in the throes of his lament. And God reveals himself. Friends, what does this show us? That our God can be trusted. We can trust him with the broken pieces of our hearts. We can trust him with the circumstances of our lives. Even when we are struggling to make sense of it all, we can know that our God does not change. He has not ceased to be trustworthy. So bring him your question. Bring him your confusion. Bring him every complaint you can think of when his story causes you exasperation. You can bring that to him. By faith, you can gather up all your laments and you can offer them to him in your prayer and he will meet your prayers of gut-level honesty with nothing but kindness and grace upon grace. In fact, on this Sunday, after Epiphany, the kindness and grace of our God becomes even more clear to us. Pastor Kirk helped us see this in our Prayer of confession. Not only does God hear our honest prayers, not only does he care enough to listen and to respond with grace when we call out to him, but God cares so much about the brokenness of this world. He cares so much about the violence and the oppression and and the, the brokenness that he entered into it all. In love and compassion, our God came to us. The word became flesh and he dwelled in our midst and we have seen his glory. 
glory is of the only Son who is from the Father, who is full of grace and truth. And Epiphany is a time for us to set our hearts upon that reality. The Son of God appeared amidst all the broken and consolable things of our world, and He did it so that He would reveal the glory of God to us. It is the most surprising part of the story that God is telling. It's the most wonderful plot twist that the storyteller himself entered the story. And yet, even as he exists in the story, he still remains its author. So that in the person of Jesus Christ, you have a man who is suffering the evil and the chaos and the injustice of life in this world. And yet, you also have the God who is sovereign over all of it. For in him, in Jesus. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God's glory is revealed on earth through the flesh of a man who suffered and wept just as we do. I mean, we've seen this today in Habakkuk that that the prophet engaged God with a prayer of lament over the violence and the oppression that he saw. Let us remember on this Epiphany Sunday that during the earthly life of Jesus, we see the same thing. We see the same thing happening with our Lord. He is in no way unfamiliar with the prayer of lament. He knows what it means to pray honest prayers that honor God. The prophet Isaiah tells us this, that Christ walked this earth as a man of sorrow. Who was acquainted with grief. And even as he remained the divine son of God, he also suffered oppression and violence at the hands of sinful men. He suffered those things as a man. And because of this, the book of Hebrews reminds us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications to God with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his reverence. Friends, what what Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus perfected your prayer of lament. He prayed in a way that is both honest about reality, yet honoring to God in every way. On the one hand, he prayed just like Habakkuk. He prayed prayers of lament with tears and loud cries. But on the other hand, he never failed to revere his father. He had complete and total reverence for God. He honored God. Nowhere do we see this more strikingly than when Jesus prayed from the cross. As he was being crucified, as he was suffering at the hands of sinful men, Jesus asked this very same thing that Habakkuk asked. And it's the same thing that many of us came into this place asking today. Jesus asked why. He asked why. Habakkuk asked, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you allow injustice to persist? Why is justice being perverted? And maybe you're asking why today as well. Maybe you're asking, why isn't my life working? Why am I suffering? Why am I sick? Why am I so depressed and anxious all the time? Friends, this is the most human question of all. The most honest prayer there is, is the prayer of why. Every one of us has asked that at some time or another. We've all asked, why God? Why? 
And so it should come as no surprise to us that on the cross we hear Jesus praying a lament from Psalm 22. He prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason that Jesus did that, the reason he suffered as he did, the reason he prayed as he prayed was so that we could come to the storyteller and pray honest prayers that honor him. God is calling us to embrace the practice of lament when we experience the pain and suffering of life in this world. God is calling us to entrust ourselves to him when we're confused and afraid and we get to do those things because Jesus did them on our behalf. We get to do those things because of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us that Christ suffered. He suffered once and for all for sins. The righteous was afflicted in the place of the unrighteous. And here's why. So that he could bring us to God. The one who suffered on your behalf wants to take you by the hand and lead you to the only place where the brokenness of this world could be healed. The very presence of God himself. So you can come to him. You can bring to God your gut level honest prayers. You can offer him your how longs and your whys. And you will not find a God who is irritated by your questions. He will not be put off by your impertinence. No, what you will find in Christ today is a throne of grace where you can receive mercy and help in your hour of greatest desperation and need. That's what Habakkuk found. And that's what we're being invited to find today. God is inviting each and every one of us, his people, to pray honest prayers that honor him. So let's do that together. Would you lift your hearts to God with me as we go to him in prayer? God, so often we find ourselves living in those parts of your story that don't seem to make sense to us. We're confused and at times downcast by the brokenness we see. Why, oh my soul, are you so downcast? Hope in God. We can say that knowing that you've given us a way to bring our hardships to you. So we come to you this morning lamenting the reality that this world has fallen, it's broken. And so often it's fallenness touches our lives in ways that leave us feeling hopeless. But we also know that with you, there is hope. There is hope against hope. Habakkuk begins the book saying, how long? But he ends by saying this, yet I will rejoice. Lord, that just goes to show you don't leave us in the brokenness. But you use it to bring us closer to you. You use it to reveal your glorious plan to us. And that's how you redeem all the things that we go through in life. So God, I ask that for your people 
you would do that today. Redeem the broken, inconsolable things of our lives as we look to you by faith. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.